0: Uh, Committee of ministers in a certain city was discussing the possibility of bringing in D.L. Moody uh, for an evangelistic campaign in their town. Uh, One young minister who was struggling with this idea uh, basically stood up and said, why Moody? Does he have some sort of a a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And they sat a little quiet for a little bit, and then one of the, uh, the older ministers finally spoke up, and he said, no, he doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on him. Which I thought was a pretty good answer. Uh, This morning we're going to uh, begin a series of sorts. Um, I looked at the calendar, and the way it works out is I'm preaching at the end of June, I'm preaching at the end of July, and I'm preaching at the end of August. So my series is going to be spread out If you really want to see it all, you're going to have to make sure you're here, watch it online, or listen to the podcast, and all of those are just blatant things to remind you of all that stuff that we have going on, okay? Um, Upon coming in today, you were given a rock, and I just want to make sure that we all understand that is not for your opinion of the sermon, okay? (laughs) You will find out what it's for later on, okay? Okay. What I do want to do is bring our attention to some images that the Bible gives to us regarding the idea of surrender. Uh, in some churches that I have been in, uh, the church has a children's sermon before they dismiss the kids to go to their classes. And usually the children's sermon entails some sort of a, an object lesson. Okay? Now, the thing that I have learned over the years as I've watched children's sermon after children's sermon is this. The adults enjoy the children's sermon more than they enjoy the regular sermon, okay? (laughs) Uh, When they start hearing about things like um, watching the dominoes fall over and how that relates to evangelism or popcorn being popped and that relates to the aroma of Christ little seedlings in their thing, and that relates to the person who comes along in plants, and the person who comes along in waters, and watching it grow, and the person who comes to harvest, and they get all excited and they learn, here's my final conclusion. If it gets adults to learn, let's do more of them. That's an awesome thing, okay? So maybe we should be doing more uh, object lessons and things like that. But the reason why we do that, the Bible gives us various images And uh, God has done that for us to burn these concepts into our mind, to help us to truly understand what's going on. So um, we need to get used to the fact that God teaches in a multisensory way. Sometimes that makes us nervous. We think that that's some sort of new hippie kind of weird thing in church. But the reality is that God teaches in a multisensory way. Uh, The sight of blood and the smell of the sacrifices in the Old Testament was meant to teach a lesson. Uh, the yoke that goes between two oxen, obviously Jesus used that as a lesson. Uh, the idea of being jars of clay, again, an object lesson that God has put in there so that we can learn and grow. Um, what we want to do today is uncover some of the images that God has put in his word so that we can learn and grow. But before we look at the biblical images, I have a question for us to consider. What is the difference between sacrifice and surrender? Or are they the same thing? If you want a head scratcher, think on that question. It took me about three days of thinking, studying, learning, and growing on this idea so that I could finally kind of come up to some conclusions and through all of that, through the studying, one, uh, reading some of the pastor's works, one pastor in particular became very uh, uh, influential in this, J.D. Greer, uh, in helping me reach some conclusion, conclusions on this. When we use the terms sacrifice and surrender, we usually use them interchangeably. I surrendered whether or not I would get that promotion at work to God, or I sacrificed my desire to get that promotion at work to God. So we kind of use those interchangeably. They sound very similar, so we should just be able to walk away and go, case closed, they're the same thing, Keith. Hang on. Um, There are ways that they're used differently. We often would rather pursue sacrifice rather than surrender. Sacrifice involves the idea of obedience, and surrender also uh, involves the idea of obedience. However, Surrender starts with the realization that everything that we have isn't really ours. Sacrifice doesn't start there. So you can make big sacrifices, but still ultimately maintain control. Uh, You can sacrifice money into the offering plate, but still feel like, well, that's my money that I just put there. You can sacrifice your desire for that promotion, but still feel like you are the one that's in control of your destiny and your, uh, where you're going in life. You can sacrifice your time to the church or going to a soup kitchen and feeding people and all these kinds of good things, but you can still feel like it's my time. I'm sacrificing my time. Surrender, however, it includes the idea of sacrifice, but it's a little different. Uh, you can obey all kinds of God's laws and not be surrendered to God. And a lot of us are that way. Okay? We consider ourselves good Christians. We do things at church regularly. We might give big to the church. We might have all these things in our favor. But there's still that something that we don't want to give up to God. God asks us for it, and we don't want to surrender that thing. As long as there is room that remains locked to God, uh, it doesn't matter how big or small it is, we are not being surrendered to God. Because surrender is basically a blank check. It's telling God, you know what, everything that I have, everything that I am, all of my hopes and dreams, all of these things, I surrender to you for you, your use and for your glory. Surrender permeates every bit of our lives. It affects our obedience in sacrifice, but it's bigger than both. Uh, you've probably heard the breakfast analogy. Correct? You're eating your eggs and your bacon for breakfast. The uh, the chicken made a sacrifice, and the uh, the pig, he surrendered everything, right? Just so that you could eat that delicious breakfast. <laughs> Surrender is not about religion. Because religion is man-made. It is about following the rules to be able to gain God's favor. But when you have encountered the gospel, the genuine true gospel of what God is telling us, we begin to understand what Jesus did for us and the way we respond is gratitude. Jesus gave it all for us by offering his son to make us acceptable to God when we had absolutely nothing to offer. And wouldn't you gladly surrender all to him when he does that for us? So, for the astute among you, you may have noticed that our altar today has an altar. And some of you may be wondering if I've had a significant change in theology in the last week, uh, wondering whether we're going to be having sacrifices a little later in the service. And my question to you is, who brought the lamb? Right? Um... The altar here is our first biblical image. And that's the one that we're going to be talking about today because it relates so much to surrender. So Exodus chapter 20. Words will be on the screen. You're welcome to look it up. Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me, Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Whenever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed to it. So, God is giving very specific instructions on how to build an altar. And it seems maybe a little strange, considering that they had been building altars for years by the time of Moses. But these instructions, we find some wonderful ideas and concepts about what surrender is really about. So the very first thing. We are to have no other gods before us. So the first thing we notice is that God is commanding his Israelites, no gods. Nothing comes before me. He says, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken from heaven. And to understand this statement, you actually kind of have to back up a couple of verses to verse 18. It says this, basically when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, they saw the mountain in smoke and they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. Now this mountain, they knew (laughs) this is not normal. This is the presence of God on this mountain. They had traveled enough to know that mountains don't do this. It's not a normal thing. And they had been being led at this point by a special cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So when they walk by a a mountain that is doing this kind of thing, they know that this has to be the presence of God. But God then tells them to not make any gods out of gold or silver as if they're going to possibly be alongside God as if they're on par with God. There's no way that's going to happen. And this is the second time that he actually tells them this in the same chapter. Verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. God has proven himself to them by getting them out of Egypt. And he did this by miraculous means. So many want to downplay the miracles in the Bible. Uh, that the Bible records here. But why would you follow a God if all of the things, all of the miracles that they saw in Egypt, all of the things that they're talking about are mere coincidences that you can explain by nature? Why would you follow a God like that? It has to be miraculous. God is pointing to what He has done and He basically says, any other God that you create, try and worship, uh, excuse me, or try and worship, has done absolutely nothing for you to prove themselves because those gods are not real. You will not make images of gods because those gods do not exist. He's saying, I am it. I am the only God. And here's the thing. It only takes them a few chapters before the Israelites completely lose their mind and go running the complete opposite direction of this. A few chapters later in verse chap, or chapter 32, they make a golden calf to be their God because Moses was hanging out on the mountain a little too long. And even though Aaron stood there and he said, I am dedicating this as a festival to the Lord. It stood for absolutely everything that was false that God was trying to say, don't do this. That by the way, is religion. Again, religion is man's attempt to get to God, to earn their salvation in some way of pleasing a false God or pleasing our God even. Excuse me. Christianity is a relationship brought about by Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross for us. And this is where we pause for just a minute to examine ourselves in relation to idols. Now, I've placed a few idols over here on the table, okay? The first one is a TV, which is just simply standing for or er, uh, representing entertainment, musicians, actors, authors, any of those kinds of things are just falling under this category of entertainment. The second one, social media. You got all these little icons on there. Uh, you could even throw lump friends into there, but a lot of people let social media kind of become their god nowadays, and that's the thing that they stare at on their phone, at their thing, whatever. Third, you may not be able to see it quite as well, but we've got a nice little pot of gold that I was able to find from a leprechaun not too far. But uh, representing wealth, representing material goods, all those kinds of things. The next one, the fourth one, is a picture of my family. And up in that left-hand corner is a really good-looking guy in there. But anyway, representing the concept of family. And a lot of us go, wait a minute, Family is, can be an idol? Absolutely. If you remember what Jesus said, he said, unless you hate your mother or father, you cannot follow me. Jesus did not literally mean you have to hate your mother and father. What he meant was, you have to love me more than them. So it's possible to put your family in a place where they are your God. The fifth one, is a mirror ourselves who we are hey look at me look at my character look at my job look at my lifestyle look at this look at that all these things that encompass who we are we can obviously become our own God and the last one is blanket standing for comfort and in my opinion this last one is the one that basically is a killer of the American church Uh, We love the fact that God put us in America because we have freedom to worship. We have all these different freedoms and so on. So we're nice and comfortable. But that comfort sometimes leads to, if God is leading us in some direction, I don't know, that puts me outside my comfort zone. You want me to go on a mission trip? They got weird food and weird people. I don't know if I want to do that. You want me to witness to my friend? That's scary. I'm not sure I can do that. You want me to talk to people about the issues of the day and give them the biblical reasons why we do this? That's scary and awkward. I don't know if I want to do that. Comfort it sometimes pulls and pushes us back in ways that we shouldn't be there, okay? So, here's my question. Are there any idols in your life? Is there a place in your life that basically you have a keep outside sign to God? You go, nope, you can't have that, God, I'm sorry. That's for me alone. Are there areas that you have been wrestling with about God or wrestling God about? You know that this is an area that has become an idol in your heart and it really needs to be surrendered to God. If you have never read it, uh, there's a little booklet by Robert Boyd Munger entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. If you've never read that book, it is a good book to get a little bit of conviction going on in your life because it talks about how our heart is like different rooms in a house and what those rooms represent. And Jesus is asking for entrance into those various rooms. Excellent little books, like 30 pages long, not a big read. So I encourage you to pick that up if you are able to. But what we're going to do, most sermons don't stop in the middle. We're going to stop in the middle. The rock that you were given when you came in, this is going to represent whatever that may be in your life. That idol, that thing that you need to surrender to God, that's what you're holding in your hand. So we're going to take just a couple moments for prayer for you to be able to pray before God. Say, God, help me understand what this is in my life. Maybe I don't quite get it. Maybe there's an area you're trying to push me toward to understand that this is the thing I need to give up. Maybe you already know. You go, yep, that's it, I already know this is an opportunity to talk to God about those things and we're going to come back to these rocks at the end of the uh, end of the service but right now i just want us to make sure that we're identifying those things so let's take a couple moments in prayer pray for each and every one of us in this room that you're helping us to identify whatever that may be in our life. It's possible that right now we really truly feel surrendered to you because it's a daily thing that we do. But Father, if there's something in our life that you are pushing on, something that we need to let go of and give over to you, help us understand that. Lead us to that. That includes me. I'm the first one that I'll look at and say, yeah, there are things in my life that need surrendering. So Lord, help us to identify those things as we go through the rest of this message. In Jesus' name, amen. First, God tackles this area of getting rid of herb idols. Then he gives us instructions on how to build an altar. And there are two requirements on how to build this altar. Number one, it says, make the altar out of earth. Uh, it's supposed to be a simple mound of dirt. And it may not have been particularly high. This one is not particularly high when you're making a temporary altar not one that's in the temple which that's what I think we've been trained on we think it's up here by us so that we don't have to bend over but this is something that number 1 causes you to kneel cuz you're down lower but may not have been particularly high um bible actually says if you make it too large uh you can, shouldn't be making it too large verse 26 says don't do that but the second requirement says if you make it from stones which we have stones up here. And by the way, this is the first altar I've ever made. So if it doesn't hold together real well, you can please forgive me for that because I'm not accustomed to altar building. Um, But the second requirement is if you build it from stones, make sure that you do not cut or dress the stones in any way. Don't polish them up, don't make them pretty, don't do any of that kind of stuff, make it simple. Why these requirements? The Old Testament sometimes seems strange to us because they have strange customs, strange ideas and things, and they can be sometimes confusing. Well, first reason, the key to authentic worship is going to be humble dependence on God. Worship is never about us. And I'll repeat that because we in America have a problem with this. Worship is never about us. And this cuts in every way and direction for every type of person in here i like traditional i like blended i like contemporary i like doing this i like doing that in the service that's great learn to appreciate other things if you really want to push yourself on this and push yourself outside the comfort zone go worship in a foreign country which is awesome by the way because they have such a heart for God and you get to blend in with them. They have a totally different language and you're just coming together to worship God. It's awesome. Go worship at a black church. I've done that too. Um, the passion that they have is infectious and it's kind of amazing. That's a couple of good ways to push yourself outside your comfort zone. Remember, worship is not about us. It's about God. Over time, we have taken the simplicity of true worship and marred it by humanity's inclination to reverse the focus of worship from glorifying God into glorifying ourselves. But the second thing about the undecorated altar is this pile of rocks becomes an image for God's people. It was a symbol of human need and divine acceptance. Humility in coming to God. Mercy in responding to God. Repentance through sacrifice. Redemption through sacrifice. God did not want the altar, this symbol of worship, to turn into a shrine to humanity. Uh, basically, when you decorate the altar, you desecrate the altar. Because can you imagine... <laughs> humanity's inclination to worship themselves and so they start getting prettier and prettier rocks and they go look at my altar it shines really well oh look at my altar it's put together really well that's the kind of thing that we have this tendency to do as human beings and then it just simply takes our eyes off of God God's thought was real simple keep it simple it's just a pile of rocks The point is not the rocks. The point is what's going on in worshiping me. There's a man named George Hebert. He wrote a poem in 1633 entitled The Altar. Now it's going to be displayed on the screen. I don't actually expect you to be able to read all the words. The words are not the part I'm focusing on. What I want you to notice is the shape of the poem because it was written that way intentionally. What do you see? See, some of you are going to see an altar, like an equivalent of a modern-day altar. But if you notice, you can also, in some ways, make out a shape of the letter I. Okay? We're going to keep talking about this. Because the shape is intentional, uh, as one author puts it, both symbols were meant to mean the same thing. And here's what I mean. Is your identity in the shape of an altar or in the shape of your altar? In other words, is your I, are you being shaped by what your altar represents? If your altar represents the things that you want to hold on to, the things that you are sacrificing to, how is that shaping you? If your altar represents the things that the altar is supposed to stand for, Humility, simplicity, repentance, um, sacrifice, redemption, all of these different things. If that is what your altar is, how is that shaping who you are? Then we come to the third thing, our final thing. Our true and proper worship is always at the altar. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now this is going to be a really quick overview because we could be here, like I said, for another three hours just working on these particular verses. But what Paul is doing is he is pointing back at all the previous chapters of Romans. Okay? So he makes it all the way up to chapter 12 and now he's going to point back at the last 11 chapters. Last 11 chapters have been covering some heavy-duty theology. He's been laying out all kinds of things, and what he is about to do is answer the question, so what? All of this theology that he's been building toward, and right now he's turning the corner, he's going to answer the question, so what? So what if all sin and fall short of the glory of God? So what if God demonstrates his love for us in this, that Christ died for us? So what if there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? He's about to answer those questions, so what? And basically all he's doing is putting the ball on the tee in these two verses. And he sums up all 11 previous chapters in one little phrase. In view of God's mercy, all those 11 chapters behind this, in view of God's mercy, here's what you're supposed to do. And it's a very small note that I'm going to tell you, but the word mercy in Greek is actually plural. So it says, in view of God's mercies, not just mercy at one point in time, but all of the mercies that God has shown us throughout our entire lives. Because of what God has done for us in sending Christ to die in our place on the cross for our sins, because we owed a debt that we could not pay to God and God paid that debt for us, then do these things that Paul's about to say. And he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So watch this part carefully. God's mercy is an all-encompassing thing in our life. It affects every part of who we are in every part of our life. There is not one part that is not affected or touched by the mercy of God. So Paul told us in the last seven chapters, this is what he was saying and building up for us. God's mercy affects our sin it affects how we are viewed by God in that we were justified, we were declared right by God. It affects our family connection and status with God because we were adopted into God's family so that mercy is all-encompassing about who we are. If God's mercy is all-encompassing, then our response to God's mercy obviously should be all-encompassing as well. So notice how this fits with the idea of surrender. God is not asking for sacrifices from us as if he wanted or needed anything, all right? So please, let's all get this. God is not looking and God does not need your sacrifice of your money. God does not need your sacrifice of your time. God does not even need the sacrifice of your praise. God is not interested in the gift. God is interested in the giver, that's what he wants. The gifts come after the fact. When, he is, when you are surrendered to him, that's what he's after. Is He's after the giver of those gifts. He's asking for our whole bodies, our whole selves, our, so that we are a living sacrifice. It's Paul's way of saying the whole person. In fact, when Paul uses the word offer, uh, the word can also be translated "place at someone's disposal. So you're offering yourself as a living sacrifice. You are giving yourself uh, as a living sacrifice. Uh, We're putting ourselves at God's disposal. What then does a life that is surrendered, that has been placed at God's disposal look like? I'm going to tell you the first thing that happens is it's a process. We can make a decision to follow Christ. And in many respects, that one-time decision says, yes, I want to follow Jesus. This is the moment in time that I say, I am turning away from the life I had before and I'm going to turn toward Christ because I recognize what he did on the cross. But Paul reminds us that it's a process to be transformed, in particular, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It takes time to transform. It takes time to unlearn some of the junk that we learned. It takes time to learn new ways and new patterns of life through Christ. So we know it is a process by the words of Jesus himself as well. Said, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross. Everybody know the next word? Oh, we skipped the one. It's the other version of this verse. Take up your cross. There's a time frame in there. Daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This is a daily exercise. We have to give ourselves over to Christ day by day, surrendering ourselves to Him 100%. Which there's a second thing that makes it a choice. It is a choice each day to pick up that cross, it's a choice each day to die to self. It is a choice each day to place at God's disposal our whole selves and everything of who we are. We face the altar of surrender. The altar that God desired was simple, humble, not decorated. So when we look at the altar, it is a symbol of surrender, and it means that the altar is not full of pride. It was a pile of rocks put together so that the focus would be on God. It was about surrender to him. Now the altar tells us uh, about ourselves and our surrender. In a moment, we're going to see a picture of the poem the altar. It's going to start here in just a moment. What I want you to notice is that it's going to make some transitions. We've got this altar that we were talking about before, but how do we display, uh, excuse me, how should the altar be shaping I? How should the altar be shaping who we are? How do we display the I in our life? And if you have ever wondered why people raise their hands in worship, perhaps this is the reason that we are creating ourselves unto as an altar to the Lord saying, yes, I surrender. Just like we say the same thing at the altar. Yes, I surrender. So again, when you were given, came in today, you were given a rock and we've already prayed over those rocks. What we're going to do to close out the service, the worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing the song. Oh, come to the altar before we sing the song. Um, we're just going to take that time again to consider our rock, consider what that surrender is, that thing that we need to surrender. Uh, Our rock represents all of those things. We've discussed all of that. Whatever those things may be, materialism, uh, family comfort, something that we didn't name but God has been putting on your heart. What I want you to do while we're singing the song is You are welcome, I'm not going to tell you you have to, you are welcome to come place your rock on the altar as a means, as a show of surrender. Now, a couple things. If you walk out of here and you still have your rock in your hand, uh, number one, nobody's going to think you're super spiritual, that you don't have any business to do with God. And number two, nobody's going to think you're a heathen and don't care about surrendering to God. It's perfectly up to you 100%. This is an opportunity for you to say, God, I'm here to surrender 100%. So the worship team will come.